Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show, and today we're going to be discussing the study of the Vedas and how properly chanting the ancient Vedic mantras can support us in deepening our spiritual growth. My guest today is Shantala Sri Ramaya, Vedic chanting teacher and the founder of Vedastudies.com. Shantala was born and raised in Bangalore, India, where she studied Sanskrit and chanting from an early age as part of her family tradition as well as in school. Much of her inspiration comes from her mother, Saroja, who taught chanting classes in their family home for over 30 years. Shantala aspires to continue her family tradition using her long background in learning and development. She offers classes internationally online and in Brussels, Belgium, where she currently lives with her husband and two children. Her website is vedastudies.com. You can also follow her on social media on Instagram at veda underscore studies and also at her name, Shantala. S-H-A-N-T-A-L-A, Shantala underscore Sri Ramaya, that's S-R-I-R-A-M-A-I-A-H, Shantala underscore Sri Ramaya. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Shantala. I'm delighted you could join me today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Before we begin our dialogue, about how Vedic chanting and the study of the Vedas can help us develop spiritually, let's begin with a moment of being here, being right here, right now. Let's begin by bringing our attention to our body, just feeling our body in space. Whatever we're doing, whether we're sitting or standing or walking, just noticing and particularly noticing any surfaces that support our weight. And now turning our attention to the breath and just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling how now that air is warm. Continuing to follow our breath and just staying present right here and right now. Here's something to contemplate from Yogacharya O'Brien's book, The Jewel of Abundance. Mantra is a profound tool to purify the mental field 
help prepare us for superconscious meditation and align our mind and consciousness with spirit. It can also be used to bring awareness and energy to an intention or sacred vow. Mantra practice energizes our will and strengthens our determination by clarifying the mind, awakening vital force, and focusing our attention. Mantra practice energizes our will and strengthens our determination by clarifying the mind, awakening vital force, and focusing our attention. Once again, Shantala Sri Ramaya, welcome to the Yoga Hour. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show to discuss the power of the Vedas and in particular Vedic mantras. From your bio, I know that you have a background in technology and worked for 20 years in the tech, center, in the tech sector as head of HR. Your mother, as I mentioned, had taught Vedic chanting for many years, so you also had deep roots in this area as well. So you were working in tech for all those years, and then you are, now you're doing Vedic chanting. So what led you to change your career direction? Thanks, Laurel. So one thing uh, in addition to know about me is that I'm from the south of India, from Bangalore, and it's really a tech city. So the first thing anyone does when they come out of high school is start preparing to go to, uh, you know, a, 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 an engineering school. So this is what I did as well. It's the first thing, you know, if you have a dream, of becoming an artist or <laughs> you want to be a singer or dancer, you have to first get an engineering degree <laughs> and then you can explore your dream. So I went with everyone else and I, you know, my entire family, my myself, my brother, my father, my 16 cousins, we're all engineers. <laughs> and this is very common in Bangalore. And, and of course, I'm very grateful for that background because I received really lots of training in, uh, especially when I joined uh, the tech sector and, you know, I was within HR. So I, I studied and I learned and I developed my skills in being able to um, develop courses for online platforms and to disseminate, you know, company training <laughs> <laughs> online. And so I've had extensive you know, instructional design training and all of that. So for 20 years. That's but, so perfect. That's so perfect for what you ended up doing, huh? <laughs> yes, but I had I had absolutely no idea at that point that I would use it uh, for something that was my family tradition. So I, you know, um, I continued my studies. I got a master's in organizational psychology and I was heading HR. And even when I moved to Europe, so that's the job I had. And then um, in 2012, uh, my mother passed away and it was the same year that also my son was born. So mm. 
I was a new mother and it was during my maternity leave <clears throat> that my mother passed away. And mm -hmm. so it was a really a big turning point for me. Right. And then I decided that I need to put some effort into continuing our family tradition because it would have ended otherwise with my mother. Mm -hmm. And so I took about a year to transition out of this corporate job. And I still didn't know what I'd actually do. But some friends of mine, uh, you know, in the small yoga community that I used to practice with, they sort of saw my mother's books in my bookcase and they asked, and these were some books on chanting, uh, you know, some texts, some um, uh, Lalita Sahasranama texts, etc. And they said, well, can you do like an information session for us? And we'd like to know what this is about. And so I just started to do this for fun while I figured out what I'd do with my life. And, <laughs> and you know, so and this information session became another one at a friend's place. And then some yoga teachers turned up to these sessions and they invited me yeah. to teach at their uh, yoga places. And, you know, the next thing I know, I sort of woke up one day and I told my husband, well, this is what I need to be doing. You know, this is my life. <laughs> and so it quickly had a little overnight little website. And, but I was in Belgium. I was, I didn't have any network. I don't speak, you know, at, at the point I, I speak French, but it's not at a level where I can teach in French. And so, you know, from the start, I decided that I'd just go online immediately. And so for years, I'd been hamstering away at these online courses and building self-paced courses. And I took years and years to make quite a lot of it. Mm. And um, really, it's when COVID happened that I was really there with a full online offering mm. ready to go. And that's when I started to offer things live and online as well. So I was just mm. teaching in person and I had self-paced courses then I added on the two mm. so that's really it you know it's a it's a long story but it feels like everything was planned so precisely for me by the divine so I'd gained the skills I needed yeah. and at the very right moment I was sort yeah. of ready to make this my uh, make this sort of my life's mission yeah. and with great wow. joy and with great love <laughs> Wow, that is such a great story and, and so many um, examples as what you just gave of this divine grace, you know, that we find, you know, that when we're when we are lucky, <laughs> we oh my find God. that, I you live, know, we're exactly in the right place, huh? No, just anyway, just lovely. Absolutely. I live, I, I live in gratitude. Yeah, completely. Absolutely. As you say on your website, the Vedas are considered the source texts of yoga. Patanjali compiled the Yoga Sutras uh, from these pre-existing sacred texts. So for listeners who are not familiar with the Vedas, would you give an overview of what they are, where they came from, and when they were developed? Yeah, so... Uh, definitely, you know, texts like uh, Yoga Sutras or the Bhagavad Gita or all the Upanishads, the Brahma Sutras, all of these Indic knowledge systems, they all consider Veda as the authority. Mm -hmm. So they have much more refined and evolved and finely developed um, structures to following that path, whether it's yoga or tantra, etc. But the Veda is 
this uh, huge, vast collection of sacred and mystical high caliber poetry. And they were revealed to the rishis or the visionaries of the Vedic ages. I also call these visionaries super yogis <laughs> because they weren't born visionaries. They developed their vision through a sustained, uh, you know, their yogic practice, let's say. And through their spiritual discipline, they developed this absolutely clear vision of the world. They were able to see that this universe is a highly interconnected network of natural laws. And this vision, uh, they, they sort of um, transcribed, let's say, they transcribed this vision into beautiful, um, uh, mystical, you know, encoded, sometimes cheeky poetry. <laughs> and <laughs> and they do not even take ownership of you know having authored these uh, this poetry which we call mantras so these mantras they say are nothing but the truth that has always existed in this world and we just give it a certain sound and structure to it and so they don't take authorship of it and they say that these mantras are therefore apaurusheya which means not of human origin, because they've always existed. So what the Vedas say is something like the mantras of the Veda, the origin is from something like a word used called Vyoma, which means something like ether. But mm. it's really, um, in a prayerful way, you can think of it as the sources coming from this place where all the divine deities, the gods, uh, sort of, their abode, where they live, mm. and where they are present, and it comes from there. And therefore, when one recites or even listens to mantras from the Veda, there is this immediate feeling of well-being, because these mantras are so um, brilliant in their, uh, their structure. You know, there is a rhythmic sound movement which uh, they say mimic all the rhythms of the nat of nature. Mm -hmm. And so you feel very much connected with, you know, everything that is uh, nature around us and natural order, you know, dharma, things like that. Mm -hmm. So elevator pitch, if someone asks you, what are the Vedas? <laughs> we tell them they are revelations to the visionaries of the Vedic ages. So they're mystical, high caliber poetry which are uh, meant for our uh, personal um, and spiritual development. Mm. And they're meant for everyone. So um, for anyone who is seeking a prayerful way of living, the Vedas help divinize one's daily life. We don't need to become a monk. We don't need to become a yoga teacher. We don't need to give up on our worldly daily life, but we can divinize our life in the way we are living it now mm. by becoming aware of what's divine around us. Mm. And that's what the Vedas help us do. Mm. It's a difficult process though of learning and appreciating the Vedas. But once you're in there, there's no coming back. <laughs> wow. That was such a great um, explanation. I did just want to point out, you know, that uh, the Vedas are literally thousands of years old and felt to be the oldest, um, spiritual writings of humanity. 
is the way that that Yogacharya O'Brien teaches about them. So um, just so people know, this wasn't something that was created like last week or, you know, a few years ago. <laughs> That's correct. Yes, this is the oldest known spiritual literature. It wasn't even written down. In fact, it was oral tradition, which is why it has survived, because it was passed on through sound from teacher to disciple, and it was retained and preserved through sound, because if something is written down, it can be burnt, it can be destroyed, you know, all types of monuments can be destroyed, but how do you destroy sound? So it yes. it has been preserved in people's minds yeah. by passing it on. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that there isn't a um, date that all of uh, the historians agree upon, but I think that latest archaeological evidence is something like 8,000 years old mm, but uh, wow. who knows but wow. very old is a good is a good uh, <laughs> it's a good way to look at it we took this sentence from your website and i liked it so much that we included it as part of the description for this episode you write the vedas are considered the source texts of yoga and the storehouse of knowledge which through study practice, contemplation, and understanding help us with a more complete yogic development. I just love that, the more complete yogic development. So how does the study of the Vedas help us to develop more completely as yogis? Okay, we can, we can take a couple of examples to illustrate this. And because, yes, theoretically, you know, everyone understands that Vedas are the source texts, not only for yoga, but Bhagavad Gita and for the Upanishads and for all Indic knowledge systems. They all, uh, you know, agree that the Vedas are the source, are the authority. But when you actually practice yoga, and then you look at how you look at any Veda or Vedic practices, that connection is a little bit difficult to, to make. So one needs to have a teaching to unfold what the Vedas are to really make that connection and then to go deeply into it and to see that actually reciting Veda and having a mantra practice is so complementary and deepening my yogic practices. So for example, Patanjali talks about uh, many, uh, he talks about many concepts and practices. So he talks about, for example, Shraddha. In the first chapter, he talks about Shraddha, Virya, Smriti, Samadhi, you know, as being uh, Shraddha being a starting point in one's journey to Samadhi, a key ingredient. So a basic sort of qualification that one needs to progress on the path of yoga. And in the Veda, Shraddha, you know, when you learn Shraddha Sukta, which is a hymn to goddess Shraddha, Shraddha is a goddess, a deity in the Veda. And it is so beautiful, so opening and so insightful that one starts to figure out that Shraddha is not, you know, they translate it loosely as faith, but it's really much, much more. Shraddha is this devoted commitment to your practice. It's this conviction that you know you're on the right path. And when you start your yogic practices with that in mind, then you gain some strength, courage, vitality, you know, virya that follows. And then what follows is then smriti, memory. 
you know, the ability to retain teachings. And so every time we stray from our teachings, we are able to remind ourselves to come back because we have this power of memory. And Smriti, this power of memory is a big topic in the Veda, is also a goddess. So this power of retention is goddess Medha, an aspect of Saraswati. So every deity in the Veda can be connected to something in yoga. Mm. So for example, the most important god or deity in the Veda is Agni. Agni is fire. And when you understand the mantras of the Veda, we understand that Agni is, yes, there's many layers to Agni. So Agni is this external fire, heat-giving principle. And Agni is also the digestive fire in our bellies, digesting our food. And more subtly, also the fire that is digesting what we input into our minds. Right. And is also the divine willpower. It's the fire to do something, you know, the ability to do something. And this is why almost half of half of the mantras in the Rigveda are, are dedicated to Agni and Indra. I'll talk about Indra maybe later if it's relevant, but huge number of uh, hymns dedicated to Agni because one needs to develop willpower before you can sustain a, a consistent spiritual practice. These visionaries were so clever. They had this figured out. Of the 400 visionaries that we know of in the early Rig Veda, every one of them starts their, their, their mantra collection starts with mantras to Agni. They knew that willpower is something one needs to develop. Mm. And then one needs to develop Indriyas, one's you know, just power of senses to <laughs> channel them in the right uh, practices. And so the remaining mantras, half of them, is are to Indra. So we can develop, you know, our Indriyas or our, you know, all our senses. And between these two, we are able to have the willpower and have the subtle body strength to sustain our practice over a long period of time, you know, without breaks, without distraction, without, <laughs> without straying too far. And if we do stray, we are able to remember to come back because we have developed the power of memory, etc. Yeah. So every deity in the Veda is really a type of psychological power being developed, awakened, first of all. It might not even be awakened. So we awaken that that power of that deity, and then we can develop that power further through the recitation of these, you know, appropriate mantras and the understanding of these mantras. Right. Wow, that was such a great description. That was, that was really, really, really great. So you've talked about the Vedas and why it's important to study the Vedas, but I wanted to also ask about Vedic chanting because you describe Vedic chanting as a means of self-development. Would you want to elaborate a little bit more on that particular aspect of what do we get from developing Vedic chanting? Because as we're as we're going to go into, um, 
and, and as you've already alluded, it's not necessarily an easy practice. There are many rules that we're going to be talking about that that you have to learn. And as you say, it's not necessarily blissful, at least at the beginning, because there's so much that you're trying to remember. So anyway, could you talk a little bit more about what Vedic chanting in particular gives us? Yes, absolutely. Um, so when we talk about the study of Veda, you know, it's uh, it's it's we it's a practice based approach. So it's not like uh, it's it's exactly like if you wanted to learn swimming, you wouldn't go to a bookstore and buy the best book written on swimming, right? <laughs> so <No>. you <laughs> you 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 try to find a, a swimming pool. It's right, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's quite the same. So you know, um, learning Veda by buying a book and a translation is like buying a recipe book only, mm. you know, instead of going into the kitchen and uh, getting ingredients and starting to cook. So that's the difference. So they both, I mean, you 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 can do both. So you can read translations, of course, you know, I mean, there's, there's also that. But the real essence of it is in its sound, because Veda is Shruti. Shruti means sound. And it's in a special language called Vedic Sanskrit which is the really ancient form of classical Sanskrit. And Vedic Sanskrit is very uh, peculiar in that it has a particular intonation to follow. So it's not just the reading, monotone reading of a text. So there's a high note, there's a low note, there's a middle note, and there's a nuanced high note as well. And we need to maintain that in order to read it. So that is equal to chanting <laughs> so and and the chanting of this it's done in a range right so it's in a it's in three notes so there's there's a middle note there's a low note and a high note and this leads the mind to a meditative state mm -hmm. so it's not like music which has seven notes but it is limited to three notes and you stay in a particular range and in order to do that and these notes are fixed. So a particular syllable will be a high note or a particular syllable will be a low note. And the practitioner needs to follow that precisely. And the amount of concentration one has to deploy in order to maintain that is just incredible. So personally for me, I have not experienced another practice which makes me concentrate as much. Mm -hmm. Or I have to, I have no choice but to use all of my faculties mm -hmm. to concentrate and just get this one thing right. So when I'm practicing and learning a new Vedic mantra, that is all I can do. The mind is simply unable to travel anywhere else and do anything else. There's no multitasking possible. Right. So full focus on one practice. And so it's a very difficult process of doing that. But the sense of well-being from having concentrated and focused on something entirely with no distraction is incredible. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think in our modern world, and I, I, I come from a long corporate background, and I know we were rewarded for multitasking and being able to do many things simultaneously and then the Veda comes along and says, no, no, <laughs> I'm demanding your full attention just for me. So all this. So this is the practice. The practice requires one 
to have an undistracted mind, an undistracted life, to be able to practice uh, clearly and to practice accurately. Mm. And so this, uh, uh, there is no other practice I know of, at least, that requires um, this level of concentration. So one needs to receive the right text, the right teaching. You need to repeat after a teacher who has been trained and who um, has been signed off by another trained. So there needs to be a lineage. We need to authenticate texts and know that they are right. And then we uh, pass on the teaching. And there's also the context to the mantras, the meaning of the mantras, when one practices this. The entire package of it, let's say, leads one to developing a prayerful life. And what that means in simple words is that you start to become aware of how supported you are in this universe. And, and when not, there is a glad acceptance of life, um, people, and events that are taking place. And um, so there is a you know, withdrawing sort of, uh, but a joyful engagement as well with the world. Well, as you were speaking, I was thinking about my own experience with concentration and also the um, the eight limbs of yoga, where concentration is one of the, you know, one of the later steps, which we're, we're going to talk about Prachahara in a little bit, but um, I'm thinking about the last three of the eight, the eight limbs, you know, concentration leading to meditation, leading to samadhi. So concentration or dharana. Um, and that my own experience is that it is like a muscle. It's not, you have to build it. You have to build the ability and particularly perhaps in this era where our attention is so fragmented, where it's pulled this way and that way, sort of whatever stage of life we're in, but with, you know, social media and email and alarms going, going off, it's not geared to help us develop that sense of concentration and you can do it and get better at it. You can feel that muscle building. So anyway, that was what I was thinking as you were as you were speaking. Very nice. I really love that. It is exactly that. You know, you start the practice and you can develop it more and more and more, just like just like a muscle. Absolutely. And it's amazing what the human mind is capable of and how much sustained attention is possible when one applies oneself. Well, you talk about um, the uh, Vedic Sanskrit that the that the mantras are um, are uh, written in the Vedas are written in um, as being a classical you know form of Sanskrit. Um, I did want to just at least touch on Sanskrit a little bit as a language. Um, my understanding of Sanskrit and what one of the things that always has interested me about Sanskrit is that each letter has only one sound in contrast to English, where the same letter can have so many different sounds. I was thinking about the C in cat versus the C in chant. It's just obviously totally different, totally different sound, which means because each letter only has one sound, the Sanskrit alphabet has many more letters than the, the English language. So Sanskrit has 46 letters, I understand, and English only has 26. But what's nice about that is that, you know, once you see a letter, you know how it's supposed to sound. Um, what are the benefits of chanting in Sanskrit, particularly, perhaps, compared to chanting in another language? Um, 
I have to say, I have no experience chanting in other languages. And, but I, I, I mean, I, uh, I do have friends who, um, you know, I have a friend who's written a book on Gregorian chanting. And from what I understand, um, that chanting in any language does have its benefits. But I come from, you know, a, a tradition and a family that has been reciting in Sanskrit for, uh, for well, decades. And so I'll speak about the benefits of uh, reciting uh, in Sanskrit, and especially because of these texts, uh, the Vedic texts. So that's Vedic Sanskrit. But in general, the sounds of Sanskrit are said to, they, we call them aksharas. And akshara means something that can't be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And each of these sounds uh, is said to have, you know, already existed. It's not something new. And so, you know, there's a lot of research on the physiological benefits of each of these sounds and that how they connect and, you know, what there there is an origin of the sound and how to create the sound. And therefore, uh, there is this immediate physiological well-being from that sound. And so there's a lot of research on that, which um, I'm not a huge expert on, but I certainly enjoy the benefits of it, (laughs) of all of that. But Sanskrit chanting, um, for those who are in yoga and related practices and are looking to, I mean, and I see this a lot. I look at people and they're looking for something more devotional without knowing the words for it. And, And I think that the Sanskrit chanting completes that for people. It gives people a sense of well-being, and there is a, a sense of having received grace. There is, you know, you can meditate on a candle flame, but when you chant and you um, offer something to these divine, you know, sounds, divine deities, these deities reciprocate with grace. And this feeling of well-being is that immediate grace already. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the uh, from my perspective, what I find to be the sort of difference or advantage of chanting in Sanskrit. Mm-hmm. And my teachers do say, though, however, that prayer can be in any language. Yeah. And and you can develop that prayerful attitude. But Sanskrit just provides a very rich <laughs> uh, and rich literature and rich sound to enjoy that in. As you were speaking, I was reflecting on uh, part of the preparation I did as I was reviewing a little booklet that Paramahansa Yogananda wrote called Cosmic Chants. And in it, he talks about sound being the most powerful force in the universe, sound. And when I was thinking about that and thinking about Sanskrit, I know that, um, or at least I've, I've read and heard that Sanskrit has a particular... Um, it carries a particular energy. And I I agree that you can certainly pray in any language, but I do feel like there is, uh, there is something special about Sanskrit. And as I mentioned, you do have the free uh, class on your website, 
vedastudies.com that listeners can experience this for themselves. So as a reminder to our listeners, today on the Yoga Hour, my guest is Vedic chanting teacher Shantala Sriramaya. You can find out more about her and her programs, including this free Vedic chanting course on her website, vedastudies.com. This link will also be on our webpage, theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. So getting back to our conversation, I did want to touch on Prachahara being one of the eight limbs of yoga, coming after the, the yamas or restraints, the niyamas, the observances, asana or posture, and pranayama, breath control. And this step of, of Prachahara turns our attention within, marks a change in the focus. So these other practices are more external and then Prachahara turns our attention within. We begin to focus inside rather than turn the spotlight of our attention to the outer world. Chanting a mantra can be considered part of this practice of Prachahara. And the Sanskrit root mantra, I did want to just mention to listeners, the Sanskrit root man, meaning mind, and tra, which, meaning, which means to go beyond. So the Sanskrit word mantra means to go beyond the mind. So do you see Vedic chanting as part of this practice of Prachahara? Absolutely. And my teachers explain it really beautifully because you, you can start actually even from pranayama because the practice of chanting is really a type of pranayama. It's what I would call an Ishvara-infused pranayama. So Ishvara is divine. It's a divinely you know, um, structured pranayama where you don't need to do the count and hold because the chant, the mantra, is structuring that for you. And in fact, uh, we do a lot about breathing when we have to learn rest, you know, chanting, like some of the pauses, we need to learn how to breathe while chanting. So it's quite an extraordinary effort in breathing uh, when you become a more advanced practitioner of chanting. Further, when we talk about pratyahara, um, the way my teachers tell me is that the result of pratyahara, the result of becoming you know, efficient, that your pratyahara practices are working, is really when you reach a place in life where you are somewhat, well, not always, but at least becoming better at being undisturbed by your external situation. And this is definitely something that the chanting practice leads to because one you know, has a divine orientation, you have a divine focus, and you start to learn the meaning of these, these mantras and you start to figure out. So, for example, uh, one of the most magnificent hymns to Shiva is called Rudram. And when you learn this long, it's 11 paragraphs of chanting. And when you learn this, you learn that Shiva is in every object around me, whether it's animate, inanimate, uh, in dogs, in straw, in, in this cot, in this house, in this tree, in the straw, in, in the grass, in the cave, in the water, in everything. And this allows one to develop a different perspective to our reality. So it's basically saying that everything around us is really a divine manifestation. And it starts to 
change one's perspective, you know, and while not losing sense of reality in any way, because in the chant of Rudram, Rudram is also showing us that the divine is not all peachy roses. <laughs> Even the unpleasant experiences in our life is also Shiva, is mm. also Rudra, is also the divine, and is making us look at reality and face reality and yet remain undisturbed, which is really showing that that is Pratyahara. Pratyahara is when you can stay within and you can see the divine in everything and not be disturbed by external influences. Right. And this is absolutely one of the key outcomes of all chanting, all prayer, all of it. It's the key thing. As I mentioned, you have this uh, free class on your website, and I did want to thank you for that. It's really lovely. I mean, it goes into in depth in um, several areas, so people can really get a, a sense of Vedic chanting from taking this free introductory class. You make a distinction between singing a mantra and chanting or recitation of a mantra. Would you say a little bit more about that, please? What's the difference between singing and chanting a mantra? Yes. So the singing, basically, it means when you say singing, it means you have some kind of creative freedom and you're able to recite, uh, you know, sing a mantra as per your heart's desire, you know, uh, using seven notes of music, etc. But Vedic mantras are really quite, they are divine revelations. And the practice is about replicating a Rishi Bon mantra. A Rishi Bon mantra is the mantra that was revealed to a visionary in the exact same form. So there is a high note, there's a low note, there's a middle note, and we replicate that. And it's only three notes, and we have to repeat it exactly like that every single time. And therefore, you have to receive this teaching from someone who's trained in the rules of Vedic chanting. And there's an entire treatise that illustrates and that lists all of this in 24 chapters, lists all of the rules of chanting, rules of pronunciation, how to recite the Veda. It's a Vedanga called Shiksha. So the study of Vedic mantras has to be accompanied with the knowledge from these treatises. And then it's chanting. So it's not using a musical voice. It's not accompanied by musical instruments. But at the most, you would use like a drone, like a tanpura, that is setting the range for your practice and the pitch for your practice. So you can maintain that pitch. But even otherwise, just in silence, the practice is without any musical sort of accompaniments. And therefore, it's chanting. It's the patanam, we call it. So it's you listen to your teacher and you repeat exactly. And when you don't repeat exactly, you receive a little adjustment from the teacher. And then you continue to repeat until you get it right. This is the practice. Mm -hmm. And Yeah. When you describe it that way, it's actually uh, makes sense to me because if it wasn't, if it didn't have those strict rules, how could it come, uh, how could it have been transmitted orally for so many, literally thousands of years and still be um, true to the original if it, if it didn't have that kind of structure to it? And I, I was interested 
your class has this uh, Vedic chanting essentials workbook where you mentioned six rules for Vedic chanting that actually come themselves from the Vedas, from the Tatraya Upanishad. Um, so the Vedas not only you know have these mantras, but they even tell you what you're supposed to do, <laughs> how you're supposed to do it, which I thought was great. Um, did you want to say anything else about that? And then I want to specifically ask you about three of the rules that you talk about. Yes. In fact, you know, um, the lineage we study in all of, we study Veda, its meaning, you know, its history or anything. We look for information within the Veda. We don't project later texts onto the Veda. Yeah. So even the rules of Veda, etc., you know, it's like you said, from the Taittiriya Upanishad, and these um, these rules are at the beginning of this Taittiriya Upanishad, the student is immediately told that, you know, a lot of people say when you get to the Upanishads, that's where all the knowledge is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's where all the real, like, learning happens. And here you are in the most important Upanishad. And the first thing that the guru is telling the student is that don't become complacent in how you recite the Veda. Mm-hmm. And here's how you recite the Veda. There is a strict framework for it. So there are these six rules, Varna, Swara, Matra, Balam, Sama, Santanaha. And then they go on to explain, uh, you know, why it's understood that the student is advanced enough to know what each of those mean. And so it's extremely clear for one who has studied with a trained teacher, you know exactly what these rules are. And you know, when you see a text that is incorrect, you you know it. And oh, you have a reference to go and sort of uh, validate a text. And you would never learn a mantra from a resource, you know, on YouTube or so. You would only learn it from a teacher who's trained. And, you know, you become very discerning about things like this. So I've heard so many variations of very popular mantras you know, like the Shanti mantras or the Gayatri mantra, etc. It's so easy to tell when someone has not learned it from someone who's initiated. Right, right. So just to give, uh, just to give uh, listeners a little bit of a flavor of the rules, um, you focus on three rules in your um, free workbook. Um, and I'm probably not saying these correctly, but Svara, Balam, and uh, Santanaha, is that right? Beautiful. Um, so uh, why don't you pick one of those and just explain a little bit about the rules. And then I actually would love to have you chant. We'll talk a little bit about the Gayatri and then I'll have you chant it. Okay. Lovely. So the Swara I've talked about, I think a couple of times now, the, the rule Swara is what distinguishes Vedic chanting from all other chanting. So for example, you know, shlokas or verses from the Bhagavad Gita can be recited in more than one way depending on which school you learn it from, which, you know, uh, tradition you learn it from. The Lalita Sahasranama, Vishnu Sahasranama. So these are all later texts composed, uh, taken from Puranas. So they can be recited in more than one way because they do not have this Swara. Swara is intonation. The intonation of mantras in the Veda are fixed. And so that is the distinguishing thing. So for example, Gayatri Mantra, there is a fixed intonation for it. But we hear 
hundreds of variations, including, you know, very pop-like versions <laughs> of it. And so nothing bad will happen to those who are practicing it, you know, in singing ways, but you, we cannot call that the practice of Vedic mantra. That's the difference. So swara is that distinguishing feature. It's the intonation of the mantra. Mm. It's the notes of chanting. So like you have notes of music, this is the notes of the Vedic chant. So that's swara. And the other one is uh, santanaha. This is, I think, sort of insightful for to know because you can even have the correct text to, let's say, Gayatri mantra. And you will still not know how to recite it because of santanaha. Santanaha means that there are certain syllables that only manifest, certain sounds that manifest in the presence of two syllables next to each other. Yeah. So when aha and pa are next to each other, it becomes a sound like f. You can only know this from a teacher who is initiated and trained in a you know uh, in a strict vedic tradition and so this you will see the text but the sound is not even written on the text yeah. there are certain sounds in vedic sanskrit we call them ayogavaha which means that they do not uh, they are not represented on the alphabet sheet but they show up when there are certain syllable combinations yeah. and so the number of sounds in vedic sanskrit goes up to 60 so it's even larger and you won't see this in a text. Huh. So even if you have the text, it's not enough. You still need a teaching. Okay. And okay. so that's what these rules tell us, that there's much more to Vedic mantras than, you know, uh, first of all, singing just simply is not the practice of Vedic mantras. You can completely rule it out. The moment you hear any song-like uh, sound of mantra, you can immediately rule that off as that is not Vedic mantra. Right. Right. Well, thank you. I think that that at least gives us a peek, you know, into the this difference of like, what's the difference between singing a mantra and chanting in a Vedic fashion, chanting the mantra. So I wanted to ask you just briefly about the Gayatri mantra, because it is such a common mantra. Um, and I'm going to have you chant it right after this. But um, I listened to another podcast that you did, and perhaps we'll put a link for that on our website as well, because you talked the whole time, I think, about, about the Gayatri Mantra. Um, and you talked about clarity. So would you just say a little bit more about Gayatri Mantra, perhaps the meaning of it, and, um, and, and clarity? Yes, my favorite topic. It's just, <laughs> it's uh, the one thing I've always prayed for is that no matter what my situation, I'd like to be very clear about what I need to be doing in whatever the situation is. And this is my, my prayer for myself, uh, for my children, and for those around me. So Gayatri Mantra is that one instrument which provides us the means to gaining that kind of clarity and it's one of the most holy mantras in the hindu tradition and my brother also had you know huge number of months of training which i also went through before being initiated into the gayatri mantra which is a huge ceremony in our family in uh, you know in our tradition in our sort of religion it's a huge preparation 
an initiation, the entire family is involved and, you know, the, the village elders show up to bless and everybody's involved because that is when one starts doing Gayatri Japa, mm -hmm. the re daily recitation of Gayatri Mantra. And, and we know that when one undertakes a sadhana, you know, a spiritual practice, that one needs help. You can't, you need to be allowed to space <laughs> to create time for those practices. And so it's a huge ceremony. And, you know, we consider this mantra the most sacred of all of the Vedic mantras. So there is a, a, a method to learn it. And there is a method to practice it. And the meaning of this mantra is most simple, most outstanding. So I will, I, uh, you know, um, there is my late friend, uh, Jean Lemay, who wrote a um, translation he wrote this book called Hymns from the Rigveda, beautiful translation of about 12 hymns. And for Gayatri Mantra, he wrote, let us bring our minds to rest in the glory of the divine truth. And may that truth, you know, uh, inform my reflection. And so the Gayatri Mantra is a meditation on this effulgence of um, the, the, this splendor of the sun the sun, which is, you know, symbolic for truth. And this meditation is basically, it's a, it's allowing the truth to hold you. So you rest, you rest on the truth, which means you can let go because the truth will hold you. And then this truth will inform everything else in your life. And when you're operating from that place of truth, everything is very clear. Your purpose is clear. And your choices and what decisions you need to make in life are absolutely clear. And everything feels then like a flow. <laughs> so Gayatri Mantra is really about allowing your own inner sun to rise and clear up all doubt in your life. That's beautiful. Would you be willing to chant it, say, two or three times, just so people can hear the difference between a regular, like a singing mantra, which they've probably heard yes. before, or a Vedic, Vedically chanted mantra. Okay, so I will recite this mantra, which is a tiny extract from the uh, Surya Upanishad, in fact, and um, I'll recite it three times. Om Bhur Bhuvasuvaha Tatsavitorbare in Yambhargo devasyadhimahi Dio yonaf prachodaya Om bhur bhuvasuvaha Tatsavitorbare in Yambhargo devasyadhimahi Dio yonaf prachodaya That's beautiful. Thank you so much. That I think really gives people a flavor of how different it is from when they perhaps have heard it sung in the past. Well, unbelievably, we've come to the end of our time together. What words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to leave with our listeners? I just want to say um, <clears throat> it's the Vedic, the practice of Vedic chanting, yes, has not been so accessible and it's not clear what the teaching is, etc. But should you come upon an opportunity <laughs> to learn a chanting, Vedic chanting, 
in a correct way, do take it up and give it a go and enjoy the benefits of it. Even if it's a small daily practice, it's really enough uh, to, to really help you uh, lead and feel connected and feel uh, like you're living a prayerful life. And, and this is basically living, uh, it's like having a gratitude journal, but you're doing it with mantras. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. That's lovely. You've been listening to the Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. My guest today has been Vedic chanting teacher Shantala Sriramaya. Her website is vedastudies.com, where you can find out more about her and access the free Vedic chanting course that we've been talking about today. This link will be on our webpage, the Yoga hour.com. Thank you so much, Shantala, for joining me today on the Yoga Hour. Thank you for having me, Laurel. For listeners, we hope you'll join us for the many online programs offered by the sponsor of this program, the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. There's daily online meditation in the morning at 6.30 a.m., that's Pacific time, in the afternoon at 4, and in Monday evenings at 7.30 p.m. Again, all those times are Pacific time. There's also Sunday Satsang, a gathering of truth seekers, at 10 a.m. Pacific each Sunday. I wanted to let you know of a couple of programs that are coming up. Uh, Coming up later in January 2023, from the 26th to the 28th, there's an online and in-person spiritual practice retreat for those in the second stage of life, ages roughly 25 to 50. There is also an upcoming silent meditation retreat with Yogacharya O'Brien. That's going to be later this year, March 30th to April 1st, only on site. And that will be at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California. I also wanted to let you know about another podcast that might be of interest to listeners of this program. It's called Kriya Yoga Today, and it's with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien that includes presentations from classes and talks that she has given. You can access this through the CSE website at csecenter.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, check out that website, csecenter.org, for many other offerings. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when I'm delighted that I'll be joined by author and spiritual teacher Mark Nepo, who was named by Watkins Mind, Body, Spirit in 2016 as one of the 100 most spiritually influential living people. We will be discussing Mark's newest book, Surviving Storms. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember, you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, share it with a friend. Thanks to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, and Christine Sote. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember... You carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now.